Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The Batanga, or Charro Negro, as it's more commonly known across Mexico, is a simple combination of tequila, lime, and coke. Think of it as Mexico's answer to the Cuba Libre, if you will. Much like the Cuba Libre, and despite the simplicity of its composition, that doesn't mean we can't embark on the type of deep dive we typically do here at Cocktail College. This is a drink with rich national significance that requires careful consideration of ingredients and preparation, and ultimately says something, says a lot, about drinks culture. Here to connect all of those dots is Clayton Check, a Mexico-based former bar owner and writer and sociologist who's been studying and teaching about Mexican spirits for nearly two decades. Clayton is also the author of the book, A Field Guide to Tequila. It's trusty knives, black cowboys, and an ode to Don Javier Delgado Corona. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. We're in the virtual studio here today, Cocktail College, and beaming in all the way from Mexico. Clayton Check, welcome to the show. Clayton, where exactly in Mexico are you joining us from today? I am currently in Puerto Vallarta, where I'm at the beginning phase of some research into Raicia, which is you know, a topic for, for another day, uh, since we're here to talk about the Batanga <laughs> and tequila. But that is, that is where I'm at and, and why I'm here. Fantastic. And, and how much time or how, you know, have you spent in Mexico recently? This is, this is where you're based. This is, you know, you, you recently came out with a field guide to tequila. This is, a, this is your kind of area of focus. But how long have you been out there? Well, if I add it up, it's, it's at this point been, you know, kind of about a third of my life. Um, things got really disrupted by the pandemic, you know, as, as was the case for a lot of people. But I'm a permanent legal resident of Mexico. Uh, I was living in Mexico City for about seven and a half years before COVID uh, drove me out in the summer of 2021 when I went to Salt Lake City, of all places, to, to start my sociology PhD focused on agave spirits. So, you know, I think living, living in Mexico full time and studying Mexican spirits, it, you know, it felt a little too obvious. So I thought, you know, Utah, that, that, would, be a, that would be a good challenging <laughs> place to, to extend this. So I was, I was here for about eight years before the pandemic. I lived in a different part of Mexico for a year earlier on and in the interim was down here between a couple months a year to closer and closer to to three quarters of a year as my tour business kicked off uh, about 15 years ago. So um, the the better part of the last decade is is uh, you know where this is mm-hmm. this is where I've been, and now I'm kind of splitting my time between Jalisco and and Utah doing the doing the doctorate. Fantastic, and you know you mentioned Mexico City there, incredible cocktail scene right now uh, or, or in recent years. Um, you know we've written about that here at Vine Pair, but. Uh, I've had some firsthand experience there too and really exciting things going on there. However, the drink that we're going to talk about <laughs> today is one of those that I'm going to put in the category of episodes on this podcast where it's like, it is a cocktail, but it's not the first thing you think about when you're talking about cocktails and tequila cocktails. Clayton, for those who are not familiar with it, tell us about the Batanga kind of briefly. What kind of drink is this? 
Well, the batanga is a cocktail that's so simple that even I could make it, uh, although it's it's also something that has a very specific uh, cultural uh, definition, which which we'll get into. Um, it's essentially a tequila and Coke, a tequila and Coca-Cola. Um, in most of Mexico, that's known as a charro negro, a black cowboy. Uh, in, in most of Mexico, if you ask for a batanga, you're going to get a blank stare. But um, a charro negro with lime, <laughs> with rock salt, uh, with a copious amount of tequila stirred in a particular way uh, is is the batanga. It comes from a particular place in tequila, but but essentially um, it's a char it's an it's a variation on charro negro and then it's a tequila coke basically, which is a very very popular mm. style of drink here in Mexico. I think that's a really interesting um, conversation starter there, which is that. I have this experience where I'm originally from Scotland and people just assume that because of that, everyone from Scotland has an appreciation of Scotch whiskey and a deep understanding and also maybe kind of puts it on this pedestal where you would never mix it in drinks. You wouldn't add ice. You just sip it neat. Right. And I think we have that mentality or that all French people know everything about wine. Right. And uh, (laughs) so when it comes to Mexico, I bet there's maybe this assumption here that like, people in Mexico are, are only drinking tequila neat or they wouldn't adulterate it with Coke like that, like we might here in the US, but it sounds like it's fairly ubiquitous there. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a, a good comparison. You know, there's an interesting side note there too, because scotch, blended scotch is very popular in Mexico and, and arguably more popular than tequila, as, as you may know. Um, but, you know, I think there is a misapprehension and I think it's based in an attempt to be respectful um, but a lot of times, you know, tequila enthusiasts in the trade and, and without the trade in the U.S. will sort of be like, oh, well, you know, people don't do shots in Mexico or they don't, you know, they don't chase with a lime or they don't mix or, you know, they would never do this or they would never do that. Or these sweetened tequilas are for gringo palates, you know, none of none of which is is true in, in you know, my experience. Uh, and I think the most and this is one of the things I, I bring up in the book, you know, I think by far the most common way of consuming tequila in Mexico is the way you see it. Uh, spirits consumed in a lot of places throughout the world is collectively right at a table. Um, you get a bottle, you get a bucket of ice, you get one or more types of soft drink and everybody kind of makes their own drink. There'll be limes and salt at the table and sort of everybody mixes up their own drink to their liking. You know, if it's, if it's a big party, you might have three or four different kinds of soft drinks. Someone like me might opt for, for a club soda, something a little less sugary, but there'll be, you know, Coke, Diet Coke, Squirt, things like that. Um, and that way, you know, it allows you to make it as strong or as dilute as you want it. You can be like, oh, I, I got the first version wrong, so I'm going to add a little more tequila. And it, it, it's funny because I didn't uh, really come up in the trade. I, I came to all this from from a different angle. And when I first heard about bottle service, you know, I, was, I think I was in you know Vegas, New York, or something, and people were talking, or maybe I heard it in a song about bottle service. Like, what's what's bottle service? And they were like, well, you know, you get a whole bottle at the table, and I was like, well, that's just what you do, right? I mean, in, in Mexico, you kind of look foolish if there's more than two of you and you're ordering a spirit by the glass, right? Like, why would you not just buy a bottle? Because it's like, it's like wine, right? Like it's like, if everybody has a couple, you might as well get the bottle. Um, and, and here they're less uptight about letting you take, you know, the, if, if you don't consume the whole bottle and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the way people mostly drink tequila here, you know, on the everyday is, is, is mixing it with soft drinks and ice at the mm-hmm. table. 
there is I, I forget which brand it is and and oftentimes with these things there's like a, a pinch of truth in there maybe a couple ounces of embellishment but uh, there is a tequila brand that has it might be Don Julio you know it has the kind of smaller squat bottle and, and the story goes that that was designed because when people are chatting at the table then you didn't need to look over a bottle or there was no obstruction there so you could you know pour your tequila and, and, and drink that way yeah, you know, and, and I, I can't, you know, I can't call a bluff there. Um, Don Julio's grandson uh, named, named Lalo Gonzalez currently has his own small brand called Lalo Fantastic Tequila. Um, I think it's only available tequila, in Texas yeah. right now. Um, and and he, he, he backs up that story. So I, I'm certainly not, not going to question it. It does seem to me plausible because um, if you look back at, at the history of bottles, you don't see short bottles like that very much. And maybe Herradura was in there also, but um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly, I certainly have no beef with that story. I think it's, a, I think it's a great story. I think it's likely true. Well, and and if Lalo's confirming it, yeah, we are big fans over here at Vine Pair, and uh, I've nice. had the the pleasure of meeting him a few times. Real fun guy, real nice guy. Fantastic tequila as well, by the way, Absolutely. Lalo. You know, really good. Absolutely. We can get behind that one. Clayton, I was in I was in Oaxaca recently and chatting to some folks, chatting to some mezcaleros, and we were talking about kind of uh, mezcal's fortunes when maybe tequila was w- started to boom, and and then other drinks, other imported drinks in Mexico started becoming like very cool. And they were talking to me about the rum and coke being something that was also like really took off and really made people like kind of almost turn away from their own spirits for a little while. But do you have a sense of when? coca-cola first arrives and first or like becomes widely popular because you mentioned that that's probably like that they drink so much coke in mexico um so do you have a sense of that kind of timeline honestly i don't i don't have a specific datum there but i i do know it's it's been ubiquitous in mexico for for decades you know for for a very long time certainly longer than than i can personally remember or vouch for you know you probably heard similar stories they may be apocryphal, but they're so widespread that, that I, I think there must be some truth to them of people from many rural areas of Mexico in the South and otherwise talking about, you know, we, we didn't always have clean water, but the Coke truck always came every week, right? And, and you know, there's certainly some theorization that that's why some people get so into Coke is because, you know, if, if they don't have drinking water, maybe they're getting more Coke than water when they're kids and, and things like this. And obviously there's there's um, a lot to, to be said that can be unpacked about that. But I, I don't have the specific data there, but I do know that it's it's been popular in Mexico for a very long time. Um, and Squirt, you know, I'm not I'm not the, the hugest fan of Coca-Cola without tequila in it, um, but I've always been a big fan of Squirt, which, you know, is a squeer. Uh, which mm-hmm. which is uh, a grapefruit soda, and it's the one that actually has, I think, still ten percent of grapefruit juice in it, which you definitely notice. Um, you know, like Fresca. Um, you know, I, I can't do a pull with Fresca; it's got to be squirt. <laughs> and we actually, when we we had our tequila bar in the town of Tequila, we got the we had some of the last batch of squirt in glass bottles, which which only happened in about 2019, 2018 or twenty nineteen, and that was a real shame because you know I am I'm not Mister you know refrescologist or or you know soft drinkologist, but but I, I could tell you know in the carbonation especially and. That was a real bummer, and we held on to those bottles, just hoping we were going to be able to turn them back in, and something was going to happen. But apparently, uh, glass bottle squirt is is gone, unfortunately. Oh, really? That's what the distributor That's told us. That's a real shame. That's what the distributor told us, and I have not seen it since. That's crazy. You know, I think earlier this year, um, I, I, I was sent. I think for Cinco de Mayo, I was sent a um, 
a glass bottle of squirt and just consumed it as if it was nothing without even any tequila. Oh, wow. God well, damn you it. know, maybe, maybe it is still being bottled in the U.S. I, I wouldn't want to speak maybe. out of turn with regards to that, but our distributor who was the distributor for, they, they were, they had like kind of all the off-brand soda, soda pops, like a, a weird, like apple cider and squirt. And we were one of their biggest customers in tequila. Us and La Capilla were their biggest customers probably. Um, and they, and, and, you know, we were, we had we had like gringo dollar signs in our eyes. We were ready to overpay to keep getting the glass bottled squirt. So I'm pretty sure that that yeah. they were that they were being truthful about this. But hopefully it's still in the U.S. or somewhere. <laughs> Maybe we'll have kind of the opposite thing where where U.S. squirt will have the cachet down here that that Mexican Coke <laughs> has up there. <laughs> well, that's a great seg because you know at least half of the drink that we're talking about today, the Charro Negro or the Batanga, right? At least half of it is Coca Cola. Mexican It depends cola. on who makes it. Sometimes it's more than half tequila. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm opting for that one. Um, but there is something to be said about, like, you know, Mexican carbonated beverages. Uh, Topo Chico as well, just being, you know, like this, this runaway train here, this monster. Yeah, um, and, the, and the, you know, the square, or like you say, the square, the, these drinks, the Mexican versions are better. I always order a Mexican Coke if I'm having, you know, Mexican food here. Uh, what is it about Mexican Coke that's 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 different? It's the the sweetener that's in it, right? Well, yeah, people people say that it's. I, I haven't looked into this personally, but I believe it because it does taste different. You know, um, I think you know. So people say it's still actual cane sugar here rather than high fructose corn syrup, which which makes perfect sense. Um, although you know, sort of the the killjoy in me is always. Uh, anticipating the time when that changes, you know, because the the North American high fructose corn syrup industry has really wrecked a lot of havoc in the Mexican economy. You know, I mean, the the, the corn industry, the sweetener industry here generally, you know, in, in mixto tequila at the very industrial end, that other sugar hasn't been, you know, a cane syrup for most of those folks in a long time and has been imported high fructose corn syrup. So, you know, the cynic in me, thinks that the days of, of actual cane sweetened Mexican Coke are numbered. Um, and then the, the jerk in me wonders how many people will, will notice when it, when it quietly happens. But for now, I, you know, even I noticed, I don't, I'm not Mr. Palette, but even I noticed the difference. And, and I do think also it's just uh, a lot easier to get it in glass bottles still done here. Um, yeah. And, and I think again, in terms of the fizziness and stuff that, that really makes a big difference. Again, I'm not I'm not much of a consumer of soft drinks. I drink a lot of Topo Chico. I drink a lot of, you know, uh, Aguamineral, as they call it down here generally. I always forget what it's called in the U.S., which is so obnoxious when you're that guy in your native language. You're like, um, how do you say? Um, but I always want to say mineral water. And they're like, oh, mineral? Like, who drinks mineral water? I'm like, wait, what is it? Oh, because cl- club soda sounds so weird to me now. Like, I'm not, I'm not in the club, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It is your your mind starts doing that thing. I, I kind of had that experience. Uh, I lived in Argentina for a few years, and, and your mind starts doing that thing where you you're translating then the Spanish literally into English, and you're like, oh wait, that's that's not it. But yeah, you never want to be that guy that's like, oh, I I, I can't remember the word in English. I can only say it in Spanish now. You know, like, I know. You don't there's be that guy. there's so there's so many versions of that. You know, like even just a second ago when I when I said you know the. The big tequila brand owned by Brown Foreman, right? There's, I live at least 60% of my life in Spanish and I want to say Herradura, but mm-hmm. you don't want to be that guy dropping an Herradura into your, into your English. But so my, <laughs> my mind is always fighting with itself of like, which sounds dumber. <laughs> yeah. I think that's how you know when you come across people who have truly been brought up bilingual, they will say it 
in the way that it's said in that language, right? They can switch between, so they would say heritor, you know, roll yeah. off naturally in English like that. Um, yeah. Did you have that experience? I, I don't know, even know if that's the case here. I've never worked in a bar here or a restaurant, but down there in Buenos Aires, we had the the same thing. You know, the Coca-Cola distributor would come along and they'd have the, you know, the racks of them in glass bottles and then you'd return the glass bottles and then, you know, they would take those empties. Is that still the industry down there? Oh, I love 100%, it. 100%. 100%. At least, you know, I we our little bar, unfortunately, didn't survive the pandemic. But, you know, as of as of early 2020 in Tequila Jalisco, that was 100 percent how it was being done. And, you know, a lot of people were switching to plastic and things like that. And, and with our squirt, we unfortunately just had to switch to plastic because there was nothing else happening. But both our beer and our and our Coke and Diet Coke and all that stuff were still in, in glass deposit bottles. Mm hmm. And so what was your kind of first experience of uh, of, of having, you know, Charo Negro Batanga as a, as a ritual rather than maybe like just ordering it as a drink or seeing someone order it as a drink, but like, yeah, the kind of ritualistic preparation? Well, it, it, it was the way it, it should have been done and, and now no longer can quite be done, although the, the folks, uh, Aron and the folks keeping La Capilla and Tequila going are, are doing their best, but... You know, it, the Patango was the creation of uh, Javier Delgado Corona, who was the founder of Tequila's local cantina, La Capilla. Decades ago when he opened it, it was on the main plaza. That was well before my time. And then, you know, uh, in, in the latter part of the 20th century, it moved up uh, to Hidalgo Street, where, where it is now. And I sh I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I really think it was Julio Bermejo who, who really put La Capilla on the map for anyone who, who wasn't local, who, who isn't from that community. Um, I think... Uh, that's certainly how I became aware of it. And I had been, you know, wandering around tequila for a couple years at that time, um, but wasn't aware of it and and heard about it, you know, through people who knew about it through Julio. So um, I think we owe him a big debt for for bringing that really special piece of local culture to to global attention. So I was in there. I don't honestly remember if I was with a tour group that I was leading or if I was by myself. I was probably by myself because I generally don't take people places I haven't been and, and you know, kick the tires on a number of times. Um, but people told me you have to get the batanga and I ordered the batanga. And in those days, Javier uh, was still behind the bar. You know, he was still spry and probably in his 60s and, and, and making all the drinks. And there's different versions of, of the recipe and, and the recipe that uh, Andres Moran came up with or put in, in my tequila book, as we say in the book, is, is kind of um, adjusted for... Uh, more, maybe maybe people who <laughs> aren't going to be drinking all night, or it's it's a little more standard cocktail ratios. Whereas um, one of the old recipes that I've seen, which which they have a print of in La Capilla, or they did the last time I was there, still um, said the equivalent of a copious amount of tequila. Um, so it's <laughs> you know it's it's in a it's in a chimney glass, and I had heard Javier over the years tell somewhat different versions of the origin story of the batanga. Um, but the one I heard him say most repeatedly um, was that he had a friend named Batangas um, who was tall and skinny. And it turns out, you know, Batangas, I believe, is a, is a place in the Philippines. And, you know, there's a long history between Western Mexico and the Philippines. So that, you know, raises some interesting questions about who this fellow was and, and you know, how he came to be named that. But, but Batangas was tall and skinny. And so they started calling the chimney glass the Batanga glass was, was the, the story I most consistently heard Javier tell. And so anyway, he would, you know, throw some ice in there, free pour uh, tequileño, the traditional pour still there is, is the tequileño blanco, which is a, which is a 70-30 mixto, still maybe 30% um, cane sugar uh, in, in fermentation. 
Um, huh. And, you know, my sense was always that, that Javier was always uh, doing a very situational type of, of mixology where he was sort of gauging the time of day. He was gauging you. He was gauging where it seemed like you wanted to go. Um, and and the free pour was was sort of based on on all those factors, you know. Um, you know, he I, I don't think he ever he was responsible host. He, I don't think he ever wanted to get anyone in a situation they couldn't handle. So, you know, if, if he wasn't quite sure about your metal, you know, or you had never been in there before, it might be a pretty standard two ounces. If it was someone who he knew you and where you wanted to go, I mean, I feel like I've I've gotten batangas there that were as much as four ounces of of, of tequila, um, and then. <laughs> And then, you know, basically top off with Coke, uh, squeeze the lime in there. And there was one knife. Uh, sorry, the, um, you, can, you can tell I'm not actually a bartender because I'm, I'm getting the order all mixed up. But it's, it's rimmed with rock salt. I think the lime juice actually went in first and then the, the, the free pour of tequila and then the Coke. Um, and there was one knife. There was just your standard serrated kitchen knife. And it would be stirred with that. And, and you know, that became an important part of the lore um, but it was real, right? It, it really was. And I don't know when they washed it, how often they washed it, if they washed it. Um, but, you know, it was just a <laughs> knife. All I did was cut limes with it. And, and that was so that became part of the recipe. Um, and, and I had one and, and, you know, I'm generally not drinking my tequila mixed. I'm rarely drinking Coca-Cola, but there's always been something about that drink, especially in that place, right, where it's really refreshing, um, usually I would get a Batanga about 4 p.m., kind of, you know, you're really in the heat of the day in tequila. Um, we've probably by that point been to two distilleries, had a big lunch. Um, so it's it's sort of like your afternoon pick-me-up, sliding into evening time, loosening up a little bit, and just really, really surprisingly refreshing. There's the, the salt and the lime and the Coke really kind of coalesce around the tequila in this really, really interesting way. Um, yeah, there's. I've I've other things to say about the knife, but I'll I'll stop there. <laughs> um, well, we we can definitely come back to that knife. I have a couple quick follow up questions there, though. First, um, chimney glasses. Would that be the equivalent of a highball glass, or I, I think it's a highball glass. Yeah, I apologize again. I I was you know I was a, a semi reluctant bar co owner in tequila, but I've always I've always been on the correct side of of, of the bar, if if you ask me. My I was raised by a cocktail waitress. My mom was a cocktail waitress when we were kids. And I did sit, spend some time behind the bar when a babysitter would flake out. You know, she'd make me a little desk and give me my my Shirley Temples and whatnot. Um, but other nice. than that, I had not been behind a bar until we opened one in tequila. So um, <laughs> I had kind of a crash course in, in learning this uh, terminology. Um, you hear you hear mm-hmm. called like vaso uh, chimenea a lot in in this region. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have all glass. Nice. Um, and then so you mentioned uh, El Tequileño, you know, like mixed tequila there. I think that's a really interesting point, and maybe now is the point where we do do a deep dive on on tequila in general. But firstly, again, the, these assumptions from outside, from you know maybe the states, would be that like oh, mixto is something that's kind of made to maybe fool people that, to sell to people who don't know, or that that people wouldn't authentically drink that in in Mexico. But it's interesting that that was the go to pour for this version of the drink there, and. Is that something then that's widely consumed and do people look down on it or do people have occasions for when they're turning to mixto? Well, in my experience with it, I wouldn't want to overstate, you know, how well I know different parts of Mexico. But yeah. in, in my experience, you know, as you said, with the with the case of, of Scottish people, you know, people don't come out of the womb being experts on, on their national spirit. You know, we don't all have 
discerning taste. We're not all interested in, in, in knowing these kinds of things about what we drink. Um, my take is that in general, people in Mexico who take tequila seriously at all do tend to prefer 100% agave tequilas. And, you know, tequila really was 100% agave tequila, even its original regulations, it was supposed to be 100% agave tequila. At the same time, there were probably always people um, adulterating their mash in a way that's now accepted as a mixto tequila. So, you know, uh, these things have both probably existed for, for about as long as, as we could have called the, the category tequila. I think amongst people who take their tequila seriously, most people do stick to 100% agave tequila. Um, mm-hmm. You know, te- tequileño is, you know, it's a local favorite. It's it's a local distillery. It's a local family until very recently. You know, the, the folks who have bought into that are doing a fantastic job increasing its presence um, in both within Mexico, outside of Jalisco and in North America. Um, but until very, very recently, it really could be considered a local or regional tequila at, at most. And they were, they seem to be doing fine with that. But, um, and I don't know how many people, so it's, it's been a local favorite. And I would imagine there's been a longstanding commercial relationship with La Capilla. You know, they, they usually had um, a lot of tequileño branding in there. They had other brands too. They were very, you know, Catholic when it came to that of, of just, you know, you could bring in a bottle and they put it behind the bar, but there was very often tequileño murals and things like that around. So, I would guess they, they had a commercial relationship that went on for a long time that, that goes back a long way rather. Um, but Tequileño does sort of have the, to my mind, unique distinction of, as far as I know, being the only remaining mixto that consistently has stayed 70, 30 and has consistently kept that other sugar source to be, to be cane sugar. And it is something that I think you notice if you taste it against other mixtos. And I think, you know, you can slip that into blind flights of otherwise 100% agave tequilas, and it, it, it can stand up. Um, I'm not saying that a discerning palate won't notice that something's a little different there, but I don't think you automatically go to like, oh, this is a mixto, take it away. Um, I think mm-hmm. that 70% of agave sugars, especially up against 100% agave tequilas that are made in more industrial ways, um, I think it, it, it kind of confounds, it can confound people's palate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Another style that, again, maybe people who consider themselves uh, agave aficionados probably look down upon in this country, uh, but it's increasingly popular, would be Cristalino. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's chat about Cristalino. And from your reaction there, it's, it seems like you have some thoughts or some experiences just with uh, this topic or maybe this tension. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to be less magnanimous here, I think. You know, I I see room for, you know, I would love it if all tequila was 100% agave. Um, I think that from a perspective of geographical indications, it really is a big part of what makes tequila this kind of bastard stepchild and what makes its geographical indication deeply flawed um, is that there's what a lot of people, a lot of other academics before me have called, you know, legal adulteration. Um, of, of fermentation, you know, that's a critical way to look at it, which I think is completely legitimate. Um, Ana Valenzuela tends to describe it that way. And, and I think that's completely on the nose. Um, so, you know, if I were the Wizard of Oz, if I were in charge of things, all tequila would be 100% agave. I'll say that. At the same time, it, it's that ship has probably completely sailed. And, you know, 
we can almost pine away for the days when, well, at least it was 70-30 at one point rather than, you know, uh, 51-49. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I feel like I, it's easier for me to be a little more even-handed about the, the categories of tequila, the 100% agave and mixto categories. When it comes to Cristalinos, I'm a lot more judgmental. And, you know, this is, this is me speaking a little more in my authentic voice rather than the authorial voice I endeavored to take in the book where, you know, I have a little essay, Cristalino tequilas, what are they? Um, where I, you know, fairly objectively describe what they are, how they're made, why the people who make them say that they make them. Um, I will say that they don't seem to have taken off in the U.S., um, and they are wildly popular in Mexico. And a thing that many of us assumed or maybe hoped was going to be a flash in the pan or, or a novelty that two or three of the brands would maintain. Um, now people who, people are kind of, brands are falling all over themselves to make Cristalinos and people who 10 years ago in private would have said, I'll never do that. Why, why would I, why would I do that? And, you know, People in Mexico are buying them, so people think that they need producers think that they need to be making them. Um, from what I can tell, it's not catching on in the U.S., um, which which is a really interesting phenomenon. Because I think you're right that there are certain kind of self designated purists that tend to think that anything that they see as bad in tequila is due to gringo influence, and anything that they see as pure in tequila is must be the real true tradition of, of Mexico, right? And the reality is more complicated. Um, you know, people. People are pretty into Cristalinos here. They're, they're status symbols um, in the same way that Yoni Walker uh, is, mm-hmm. is, is a status <laughs> symbol, right? Um, like, I don't, I don't know the colors of Johnny Walker because I don't know anything about scotch, but, right, you know, like, you can tell how big someone's balling or, you know, what their paycheck is like by the color of the label on their Yoni Walker. And, you know, similarly, <laughs> someone who might have had, you know, uh, a Centenario Reposado on their table last weekend well, now they've got a Cristalino, maybe they've got a, a, some kind of 1800 Cristalino on their table. Woo, like he's, you know, something's, something's going well for him because they do have a higher price point because there's, you know, quote unquote value added through, you know, further processing the tequila. My, my personal opinion is that I don't like them. You know, that's more, that's just a matter of taste, right? I, I don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had some that were less aggressively filtered than others, that I found more palatable than the most aggressively filtered and the most highly additive laden. Um, but palate wise, they're not for me, any that I've tasted. Um, more fundamentally, I think that they're very confusing to the consumer. You know, so many folks, brands, you know, pioneers like Julio, people like Grover and Scarlet, you know, I'll put myself in there as a tiny footnote. I've spent so many years trying to educate trade and consumers about the categories and classes of tequila. And now all of a sudden we have this undefined type of tequila that's not a category and not a class. It can be any of the four classes of tequila that contain aged tequila, but it's clear. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, people who, if, if they went to some tequila trainings and the main thing they took away was like, well, the brown stuff has been in wood, right? And the clear stuff has not. Like, oh, that's... That's pretty good. That's something to know about spirits, right? <laughs> um, and now we've we've really kind of confused that. And they're like, wait, it's a Cristalino, but it says Añejo. This one's a Cristalino, but it says Joven. What is this stuff? And and I think it kind of tends to make some people throw up their hands at the whole project of understanding tequila, which which I think is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. 
So no, I think that's a great that's a great roundup. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your your kind of objective views and then also like your personal opinions and and why you have those opinions because I think that's important in providing context. I don't really feel the need for us to to jump into Reposado through Extra and Yeho because they are what they are. And I'm I'm, I'm assuming that anyone listening to this show knows what they are. Right? They're gradually sure. different ages. Done. Yep. Fine. Interesting. Yep. I want us to get a little bit more granular here and talk about ABV mm-hmm. because something we ran recently on VinePair and something that I've noticed over the years as as a slightly growing trend here is tequila that's bottled at more than 40%, right? Yeah. I saw it first, I think, a couple of years ago with a brand called El Velo. They were bottling at 43%, and and in one-liter bottles, they were designed for bartenders. I thought it was wonderful. Of course, we have the Fortaleza. Uh, I think it's still strength, which is on the highest end of the spectrum. But we ran this piece on VinePair basically saying that, like, look, not all 40% tequila is bad. There's amazing tequila bottled at 40%. And in other countries, available lower than that. Including Mexico. Including Mexico, yeah, of course. If you see anything above 40, at the moment, that means something, right? Currently, that means there's thought has gone into this and there's a reason that is being bottled. And also, the producer's leaving a certain amount of money on the table because they could proof that down and get more tequila. Um how common is that there? And is that also something you've experienced yourself? Like, am I talking complete gibberish here? Or is there is there some no. kind of uh, common sense to that? No, yeah, no, you're really onto something. And I mean, I think just a little bit of basic background, you know, the norm allows tequila to be bottled anywhere between 35% and, and 55%. And, and that's been the case for the last several norms. So, you know, in, in within recent memory, within our lifetime, certainly that's that's been the case. And you know, the US TTB regulations have this kind of oddity, which which for once, I think sort of works out in our favor, where um, they just say tequila below 40% would have to be labeled as diluted tequila. Um, and obviously, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to be the diluted tequila on the shelf, right? Um, whereas in Mexico, it's, it's fairly common. I mean, if, if 40% is the historic, you know, go-to for most spirits in the U.S. In Mexico for tequila, in my lifetime, it's been 38. And, and that's that's come down over time as palates have changed, as we've gone through price cycles in the agave, where when the price of agave is very expensive, people here tend to be very cost conscious. And so one way to keep your price of tequila the same on the shelf is to water it down, right? Is, is to dilute the amount of alcohol in there and bring down your cost that way. Most people are not looking at the percent of alcohol in their bottle. If everything else on the bottle is the same and, you know, I'm a salsa guy, I've always drank salsa, I'm not going to notice, you know, and I'm mixing it with Coke or whatever, like I'm not going to notice. And so and then, of course, when the agave gets cheap again, nobody's bringing it back up. They're just, you know, being like, well, we, we wrote Even out it. that low margin. We're going to we're going to make a better margin for the next you know eight years. Um, so the first thing I'll say is under 40 percent. Alcohol is very common in Mexico, and and I would venture to say it, it's the most common case is is to find stuff that's between thirty five and thirty eight. Um, many many people, including many people in the tequila region, if you're like, no, I only I only drink at forty, forget about above. I only drink at forty. They're like, oh, you like you're like it's strong, right? Like to, to many people, that's strong. And I I will say I dis, I discern a regional difference. This is very much my observation. It, it may or may not be true, but I feel like I had a certain regional difference where in the valley of tequila, 
people's palates really have changed over time where many or most people do prefer lower proof. Whereas in the Highlands, I don't think, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think people prefer at least 40 and they're much more open to, you know, this sort of return to, to a higher ABV. Now, all that being said, I tend to think that in different regions of Mexico with different regional spirits, people historically sort of arrived at a sweet spot where, you know, even before they were using instruments, you know, obviously when they're using the Venecia and looking at perlas and conchas and these different ways of, you know, referring to the bubbles and that I personally reject this idea that there's a minimum for Mexican spirits or, you know, or I guess by the same token that there's a maximum for Mexican spirits. I mm -hmm. really think that if, if we want to be serious about, you know, gusto histórico, which is a term I use acknowledging the people who began using that term in the, in the Logia de Mezcalotras in Mexico City and, and people in Oaxaca City, I, I use it with respect. And I think that if, if we're going to be serious about that, we have to acknowledge that sometimes that historic taste of a region might conflict with our preconceptions about what where we outside of that yes. community, whether we're American, Mexican, Scottish, what have you, think that that proofing should be set. And so, for example, there's a mezcal tradition in the Halmich region. Um, so the, the border between Jalisco and Michoacan, and they do a single, many of them do a single distillation in clay pot stills. Um, now, you're generally not going to get up to 45% with a single distillation in a clay pot still, I think. And, and I could be wrong about this, but my experience in that region with those spirits is that the strongest they generally get is around 42 to 43%. And they're delicious. And, and that's the way mm -hmm. they make them. And so to me, it would be almost a crime to come in and be like, wow, you got to make this a little bit stronger so that it's traditional or so that it's real or, or whatever, right? And all that is to say that if, if we look at the historical preference just in terms of ABV, places like Oaxaca, Guerrero in the south, they like it real strong. They, they, they liked yeah. it real strong. They still like it real strong. Um, and I get that with those spirits, I do perceive that you do lose something at lower proofs. Um, it seems clear to me that in the Tequila Valley, the magic number was kind of 46%. And it was 46% for a long time. And there's remnants of this all over the place. And one that will be familiar to most people is Herradura, Herradura, um, right? They, they make two different products in the Blanco or Plata category. They make a Plata for, well, it's domestic and export, but that's the, you know, the one we've all seen in the, in the squarish bottle. It's got a little bit of a, a hue to it because I think it spends like 45 days in oak, which still qualifies it as a, as a, as a Plata. And then they have a Mexico only bottling, which they call Blanco. Right. Blanco and Plata are the same class, um, but they've chosen to denominate the 40% ABV slightly rested on oak as their Plata. Their Blanco comes in an old hmm. school label with a round bottle. It's Mexico only as far as I know still, and it's 46% ABV. And it's been 46% ABV for as long as anyone remembers. Um, Caballito Serrero, right? That's, that's a whole nother story of how tequileros make something that's not classified as tequila legally, but arguably are, are more of a tequila, a traditional tequila than, than almost anybody. 46% <laughs> has basically been their number for as long as anyone can remember. Um, I think the Fortaleza still strength is coming in at around, around 46%. Yeah. I, I, and, and these things speak to me to the idea that that was probably around the ABV that people in that region 
felt their stuff came out at the best. And maybe sometimes it was a little lower, a little higher. Obviously, before the advent of, of instruments, it was, it was going to vary a little bit. Although in the tequila region, these instruments have been around for you know over 100 years. So there's been some degree of precision for some time. Not that people are imprecise otherwise. But um, I, I think I think I make my point that to, to me, 46% seems to kind of be the historic number for tequila. And just like with everything else in agave spirits, the craft cocktail movement scene, whatever you want to call it, um, has had a really, really big impact on these industries and, and on these traditions. And the move towards higher proof, I think, is mostly motivated by U.S. I mean, you know, lump in Europe, Aussies, everybody else. But, you know, the U.S. is still the tequila market for the most part outside of Mexico. So just say U.S. bartenders desire for more flavor just in its own right and, you know, stronger proof to punch through in a cocktail and, and to be and to be more mixable and not lose the character of, of the base spirit in their cocktails. And, and that's combined with increased interest in mezcal and traditional mezcal from those folks and from people with inside with inside Mexico. So I think 100%. you have. Yeah, I think you have two flows influencing tequila makers to be like, OK, our mass market's probably never going to want 45% tequila, but we now know there are these niche markets that really want for, you know, and you mentioned a couple, but, you know, I would be remiss not to mention Tapatio, uh, 55%. Of course. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I think is, I mean, everything you mentioned is, is very, very good as well. And, and that Tapatio 55 to me, I mean, I've always loved Tapatio and I, and I still love the mainline Tapatio, but once you get into that 55, it's a little tough to go back. Right. And I do think that's part of what's happening here. And it certainly happened to me. You know, I started in terms of Mexican spirits, in terms of spirits at all. I started in tequila and after a few years started branching out within Mexico and learning about other mezcales. And I'm not someone who's like, oh, once I got into mezcal, like I didn't want to deal with tequila. It's bullshit. You know, like that. I'm not that yeah. person. But I will say with the proofing, there is something there. There there are tequilas of mine that have always been real favorites that once I started drinking more traditionally proof mezcals, I was like, man, yeah, this tequila is good, but I, hmm. I wish there was more. I wish there was a bit more. Yeah. So I do think, I do think it, it yeah. you know, quote unquote, ruins people in that way, which, which is probably a good thing. You make a really valid point there. And I think, you know, a very astute point that I've also experienced as well, like looking at the products that are arriving on the U.S. market, right? Which is really all I can speak to beyond my very limited experiences in Mexico. But I think it really is, you mentioned craft cocktail bartenders, you know, that or I would say basically, essentially the, the audience for this show, right? Whether it's people in the trade or people yeah. that really are engaged and want to know more about spirits and, and they care about what they're drinking. Yeah. You start to see these releases arriving in the U.S., so you spoke about, you know, still strength, which is an interesting concept, really, right? Because, you know, what is still strength? It depends if you're talking about heads, hearts or tails, right? And yep. so it's still strength is just, just a weird, vague concept. But Absolutely. you can't say cast strength if it's Blanco. And then right. on the other hand, people have seen the interest from enthusiasts in Mezcal. And they've said, what can we take from Mezcal? Or what can we, how can we be inspired by that? And I think the perfect... Um, example of that was a limited release from Tequila Ocho that arrived, I think, last year or two years ago, which was a puntas, which means heads, right, for those who aren't familiar. And I've sat down with mezcaleros drinking puntas. like, I, And I know mezcaleros, some, they're like, we've always drank this. Others are like, we don't really like it. It depends on the region, depends on the yep. person. But I think that's never something I'd kind of 
that's the only release I've seen of it in tequila. And I, I think it's interesting that we're almost kind of capitalizing on these traditions to appeal to enthusiasts and almost starting these these trends like that still strengthen. No, I totally agree. And I, and I think that's a really interesting example because I am fairly certain that the term puntas for heads is not traditionally used in the tequila industry and in the tequila regions. Um, you know, cabezas, right? Um, yeah. Literally heads is the only thing I had ever heard in the tequila industry. And then puntas would be one of the terms that you would hear in Oaxaca and Guerrero in, in the South. And I could be wrong about this, but I'm fairly certain that that is, you know, and, and Tomas Estes, rest in peace, you know, was, was a real vision, visionary and certainly had his feet outside of the tequila world in other parts of Mexico. And I think really saw the opportunity along with Carlos Camarena to do this type of branding of like, oh, people are getting into puntas now. Well, obviously we have this in tequila. My opinion, Clayton, is I'm pretty sure it, it's always been called something different, but I think they saw the opportunity to say, hey, let's kind of latch on to this and, and show that the heads in tequila can also be delicious, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think it is this really interesting situation. I think there's other examples where there's sort of this melange of pulling from different regional traditions and then the vocabulary, if not the practices, um, get mixed together and then uh, packaged and sold. And then the demand is created to where people are like, oh, well, I want this, even though the this maybe didn't exist five years ago and someone's drinking it thinking it's like the most traditional thing ever, right? I mean, the case of Pachugas, I think, is is arguably similar where, I mean, just the number, not only the number of people and places making Pachuga-style mezcals, but the diversity of ingredients, right? And the number of backstories that get discovered, rediscovered, invented, you know, I think all of those types of situations exist, right? Where it's, it's you know, people, producers are astute. And, and when they see that people are willing to put that kind of money on the table for a certain type of product, um, I think it becomes very easy to find traditions. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to make clear, make it clear here as well. Like when, when I mentioned that, I, I don't mention it in a cynical way, especially the, you know, the Puntas example specifically, because look, the amount of people who that would actually appeal to or who would even understand what that yeah. is on the label is so incredibly small. It's not like we're trying to have the wool pulled over our eyes here, right? It's like, no, no. they've created something and it's super interesting to see it happen. Uh, I, I tried a very small sample of it. I thought it was delicious. Uh, but that's kind of... Yeah, interesting to see this this symbiotic relationship and 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 the way that markets and other categories can affect each other. Um, yeah, I love that we're having that conversation today here as well. But just because you know tequila, just being the absolute behemoth that it is in the United States at the moment, and uh, I, I'm sure other parts of the world, but you know, like you said, we're the major market here. Yeah. Um, I am going to bring us back to the the the, the batang and the charro negro now for for just to kind of wrap up this section of the show. You mentioned mm -hmm. the the recipe earlier, but customarily we will we'll finish with the recipe and then we'll head into the final question. So uh, Clayton, can you can you share that recipe in preparation for us uh, once again? Okay, so Andres Moran's batanga that we use in a field guide to tequila uh, has a highball glass that is rimmed with rock salt calls for an ounce and a half of tequila blanco. We call for 100% agave tequila. Feel free to, to go with the traditional tequileño. 
about a half an ounce of lime juice, which is about one juicy key lime, uh, topped off ideally with Mexican Coke, stirred with a long knife to cool and uh, dilute Don Javier style, and garnished with a lime wedge. Now, of the four basic recipes in the book, this is especially the one that folks should feel free to make their own, just the way that Don Javier in Paz Descanse would have done as he measured you and the cut of your jib as you, as you walked into La Capilla. So anywhere <laughs> from an ounce and a half uh, to a copious pour or a generous pour, depending on on your needs for for that particular time. This, this I think, you know, it really is a drink that is contextual and, and calls for uh, making making judgment calls about about where you are in your day and where you want to be in your day. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can if I can say one thing about or a couple things about the knife, um, you know, so I, I don't know how long this knife had been around. If it was really the one you know true knife, or if you know had been you know replaced a couple of times, I don't know. But what I do know is when we opened La Cata, uh, we had what we considered the best cocktail program in the town of Tequila. Um, and, you know, really one of the only places trying to have a quote unquote cocktail program. Um, but we kept it very simple with local ingredients. We had different takes on the margarita. We had a Paloma. Um, we, we had a few other, other basic things, but mostly playing around with different fruits and, and infusions and syrups and things like this. Um, we explicitly did not have a Batanga because we felt very strongly from the time that we opened uh, that, you know, we were outsiders. We had been welcomed into the community. We wanted to fill a niche that didn't exist and that we wanted to be friends with our neighbors and we didn't want to be competing with people in a place that we had no business competing. So um, we actually had on our menu, Batanga, please see La Capilla. Um, and he had the address there and we would tell people, you know, when you're done here, we encourage you to go to La Capilla and, and have a Batanga because that's where you get a Batanga. And uh, at one point when we were we were decorating, I spoke to Aron, who is uh, Don Javier's uh, nephew, and he's currently he's been running La Capilla for a long time. And, and I remember when this guy was you know standing on a box behind the bar to see over it, and and uh, you know kind of like watched him grow up into this into this cantinero. Uh, at one point, I asked him, I was like, you know, could we buy the knife from you? You know, I think it would be a nice homage to have it framed here in La Cata with a little plaque that tells people where to go with a Batanga. And I, I think I think he had a pretty good idea of what I would have paid for it. And I'll tell you, I probably would have paid a hundred dollars for this knife to have to have the real knife. And and I will always respect the fact that Aron didn't do it. He, he, you know, he could, he could have sold me any crap. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have known if it was the real knife and he didn't, he was just like, Nope, the knife stays here. Um, so we, we never, I make batangas at home, but we never made batangas in the bar. And I, I encourage everybody, if you want a real batanga, there's really one place to get it. And it's La Capilla in Tequila Jalisco. Fantastic. Well, Clayton, that's been a really fascinating chat, a, a wonderful opportunity for us to do a deep dive on tequila as Thank well. You. Um, we're going to wrap things up today, as we always do, with our five weekly questions. Beginning with number one, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar, um, home back bar these days, I would say? There's no surprises here. Uh, I'm, I'm exactly as is advertised. I'll, I'll expand this by saying it, it will typically almost always be an unaged agave spirit um, and and typically higher than 40%, although not necessarily. So whether it's uh, any number of regional mezcals, arraxia, bacanora, or or a fine tequila, it will be an unaged agave spirit. Mm-hmm. 
no surprises there. If you, if you, no. <laughs> if you suddenly came, I right. don't know, if you suddenly came out with gin. Uh, I know. <laughs> an old Tom, old really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, love that we're getting some ambience of the, of the cockerels in the background oh, there can as you well, hear by that? the way. Just want to <laughs> yeah. call that out. It's fantastic. It's the, the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question number two for you today. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Man, I want to be really careful with this. I've been thinking about this and I don't want to be mean, um, but it really is my only answer. And I think my answer is is the innate human capacity for language. And I want to I want to be as empathetic about this as possible because I know that learning languages is hard. And for most of us, it gets harder the older you get. And there are many, many reasons why people don't have access to language education outside of their, their you know, born, born language. Um, and I want to be sensitive to all of that. At the same time, I do, I have experienced many situations where I feel like I'm with people who put in a lot of time and a lot of resources to, you know, as they would put it, getting geeky um, about the history of cocktails, ingredients in cocktails, tools in cocktails, techniques, things like this. And um, I rarely, if ever, see anything like the same amount of effort put into the serious study of, I'll say, non-English languages, since that's, you know, our language and what we're talking about right now. Um, and in my case, you know, that would be Spanish. But I, I would I would guess you could see the same things in, in spirits coming from you know France, Italy, Japan, China, um, where sometimes I feel like, you know, maybe if some folks put a fraction of the effort into knowing the things they know about the history of, of cocktails or acquiring rare books um, or the resources they put into going to the same distilleries year after year after year into, you know, this wonderful resource we have in the U.S. that almost no other country in the world has, which is our community colleges, which I think is is really one of the high points of, of the United States and one of the things we've really done right. Um, so anyway, I just I wish that I, I saw more people taking learning another language seriously so that they could really get to the type of understanding that I know that they want to get to, um, because I think the absence of that leads to a lot of situations that are at best unfortunate and sometimes actually really, really cringy and offensive. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And, you know, I you know, definitely didn't spend as much time um, in, in a Spanish-speaking country as you have, but I did have that 100% that experience. One of the funny things, you know, I always wanted to learn a second language. It was always something that I grew up dreaming of and think, feeling like it's this almost like magic ability, right? And you would hear people who did speak multiple languages saying, yeah, you know you've cracked the language when you start to dream in that other language, Sadly for me, the reality was that when I started dreaming in Spanish, it was still my crappy Spanish, right? So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it That's doesn't great. mean that suddenly you get the subjunctive in your, while right. you're asleep, but you don't get it while you're awake. Right. It's like, it's, the, it's still your Spanish, right? But yeah, you <laughs> <Right>. do. <laughs> um, right. So 50% sure, at least. Uh, I don't know. I wanted to share that. I always found that funny, but That's yeah, I'm, I'm a huge proponent as well. Obviously, travel is a big part of that too, right? Like, I, I know for a fact I wouldn't have been able to pick up Spanish had I not been immersed in that culture. And I was also lucky that I ran a kitchen where no one in my kitchen could speak English and I spoke yeah. no Spanish. So we just met, you know, I, yeah. there was no choice. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and I, I think 
you, you've prompted me to say a little more about this, which is that I think the, the uglier side of this is that I think it can, or it's part of what I see a lot of times as a real othering of, of people in Mexico where, you know, just to pick one of the many examples, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, I was in Oaxaca and it, you know, it's always magical. Right. It's always a magical experience, um, even though it's, it's real. It's, it's where people live. Um, you know, I was having this magical experience in Oaxaca and, you know, I couldn't understand what the palanquero was saying, but, but I but I really got it. Anyway. And you know what, man? You didn't. You, you didn't. Like this is this is not uh, a fantasy. This is not a cartoon. Um, this is real life. And all human languages are equally complex. And this person was telling you something very specific um, that maybe because of cultural differences, you or I would never truly be able to understand in our bones, but that having a good understanding of the language would get us a lot closer. And, and I just, I feel like that's, that's the kind of thing that, that irks me is, is when people think that like, well, you know, close enough is good enough, or, uh, you know, we'll just mm-hmm. have the driver interpret for us or, or things like this. And, and then, you know, people are passing themselves off as, as authorities when, when really how close have they really been to, to, to the source of the knowledge. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop mm-hmm. there before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> no, I think I, I, definitely the first time we've gone into language on this one, but, it, you know, super interesting topic. Um, we'll go to question three now, though. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? <laughs> Okay, this is the other hard one um, because because I'm you know I barely sneak in in in, in your you know qualifications for a guest uh, for for one thing so I'm I'm you know kind of ancillary to the industry um, and and I only had a bar for three years um, and, and I want to preface this one too by saying I'm saying this about myself I'm not saying this about anybody else but I'm a very emotional guy um, and and I tend to get my feelings and my ego too caught up in things and. When we were opening La Cata in Tequila, um, it was my first experience and I was, you know, opening a bar in Mexico in Tequila and I was learning very quickly that doing business in Mexico for 10 years is very different than having a Mexican business. The level of, of bureaucracy and complication is, is, you know, 10 times greater. And so I was, I was on the phone with, with, you know, at least one of my partners pretty much every day, usually one of my two operational partners, Tommy Kloos in Portland and Devlin McGill in Seattle, who have vast experience running bars and were holding my hand over the phone a lot and and pretty much, you know, virtually drying my tears more days than not. Um, and, and Devlin kind of developed a refrain that he would say to me when I was freaking out and he would say, okay, now what does that sound like with the emotion taken out? Which I think, you know, this is not something I would prescribe to other people, right? I think like many people, you know, women in particular are, you know, marginalized and, and forced to take their emotions out of things in ways that I'm not trying to, to advocate for. But for me, it was really important to hear that and to divorce my feelings from the business and be like, you know what, the way I feel about what's happening right now is important to me, but it's not the whole story. And it's probably not the most important thing that's happening right now. And so hearing, and it used to, it would enrage me when he first started saying it, but you know, by the, by the 30th time I started to say it to myself, I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. Have these feelings. Okay. Go for a walk, do some pushups, whatever. Mm-hmm. In 20 minutes, what does this look like with the emotion? You know, maybe taken out, dialed back a little bit. So, so I think mm-hmm. just the, the, the encouragement to, separate my emotions from my work has been really mm-hmm. useful to me. 
I like it. I, I I like that mantra there. Uh, it's it's almost like, and I don't want to sound don't want to sound reductive here, but it's almost like the adult and the the kind of emotionally mature way of saying like, let's use our inside voices now. That you might say to a yeah. child, but you know, like it's the it's the the complex version of that. But just you know, those things. If you stop and you tell yourself, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna make your day go better, and it's definitely gonna lead to a, a probably a nicer interaction for the other person as well. Yeah, and and I and again, I think it, this is really context specific. You know, for a person like me who's you know socialized as a white male and has probably been a certainly been allowed to let my emotions take up too much space in my life. There's other people for whom I think the good advice would be like, hey, give your emotions some space to be here, right? And I think in a yeah. workplace, it, it's important to to recognize, you know, that, that both of those things need to be happening, sort of depending on happening, depending on mm -hmm. who, who the person is. And in my case, mm -hmm. dialing it down and, and separating it has been very healthy and I think good for the people around me also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, then penultimate question today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Finally, an easy one. Finally, an easy one. Also, I love the word penultimate. And, you know, in, in Spanish, penultimo, as you probably know, I don't know if it's the same in Argentina, it's a very pedestrian word. You know, you use it all the time, the same way you use second mm. to last. And, and I forget that. And so I use the word a lot in English where people are like, ooh, Mr. SAT. <laughs> um, but I, I, love, I love that you use that word. Um, this one is easy. Um, I, I'm a big fan of cantinas. Uh, and we, we talked at length about, about one. Um, I lived in Mexico City, as I said, for many years. And Mexico City, you know, to go to more than one cantina, for me, I want to be in Mexico City probably. But to go to only one, it's going to be La Fuente in downtown Guadalajara, um, right off of the Plaza Liberación. I'm hoping to go there next week. Um, it is just a place for me where, you know, any cliche that you could think of that, that we would say sincerely about hospitality and what bars can do to bring people together and to obliterate boundaries and things like this. La Fuente does it in, in a way to a level that I've never experienced anywhere else in my life. They, they have a piano. Um, they have a pianist. People get up and sing together. People get up and dance together. Um, it's a place where everybody's looking out for each other. Um, you know, you, people are not being creepy. Uh, it's, it's just a really, really fantastic place. And I will say, if anyone goes to Guadalajara and it's any night other than Monday and you don't go to La Fuente, you're doing it because they're closed on Monday. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, then, Clayton, last question for you here today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I hope that I can say a shot in a beer because that is actually my answer. So it, it would be a neat pour of whatever unaged agave. I'm gonna, right now, I'm going to say it would be a strong cupreata from Guerrero, Mezcal, um, and an ice cold Victoria. That's that's a that's my kind of cocktail. Fantastic, love it. Well, Clayton, thanks for joining us today. Wonderful chat. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news: every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside 
who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.